Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 369 of Forgotten Classics, where we continue with the House of a Thousand Candles. First, well, I don't have a podcast highlight, but I have an audio highlight, the audiobook My Plain Jane by Cynthia Hand, Brody Ashton, and Jody Meadows. I cannot remember if I told you guys about a couple years ago about My Lady Jane, which is where these three authors told an alternate history story of Lady Jane Grey, who wound up being in line for the British throne after Edward died a long time ago, Henry VIII's son, Prince Edward. However, that's beside the point. What they did was tell a very fun story. And so when I saw that my plain Jane was focusing on Jane Eyre, I was really interested. I listened to it recently. It's wonderfully read. So entertaining. Their little description says, Move over, Charlotte Bronte. You may think you know the story. Penniless orphan Jane Eyre begins a new life as a governess at Thornfield Hall, where she meets one dark, brooding Mr. Rochester, and, reader, she marries him. Or does she? Prepare for an adventure of gothic proportions. So, in the My Lady Jane, the change they made, aside from all kinds of historical changes, as they told the story, was that it was in a universe where people could turn into animals, so there was magic. In this universe, they take Charlotte Bronte, make her a character in the story. So she and Jane Eyre are best friends at Thornfield Hall. And then add ghosts. Some people can see ghosts, some can't. There is a royal, it's not an academy, but a royal department, essentially, of finding ghosts. And only the troublesome ones get caught. And taking them away and doing something with them, which we find out during the story. However, what was enjoyable to me was I love the story Jane Eyre, and these authors really honored that classic novel by mostly being true to the book's storyline while simultaneously weaving it into a completely different story. That takes real skill. And also... When you consider the fact it's told from three characters' points of view, so each author wrote one of these points of view that were then woven together, and you really can't tell a huge difference. Other than, you know, this is a guy, and here's his point of view, here's Charlotte Bronte's point of view, here's Jane Eyre's point of view. So that is uh, something that also was in My Lady Jane. So if you haven't listened or to that or read it, I definitely recommend it. One of the other things is these books are funny. And they're funny in a way that takes a modern sensibility, applying it to the old story, but yet is still very faithful to how the old story should be, the sensibilities there. Again, I'm not sure how they do it, but I thoroughly enjoy it. It's light summer reading. It's humorous, as I said. It's inventive. It's romantic. It's you know, alternative history with ghosts and romance. And it's the purest kind of romance. So very enjoyable. Definitely give it a try. Now, back to our story. Things did happen, but they didn't necessarily become very illuminating. For instance, we meet the girl in the red tam o' shanter and her canoe We find some gold beads that maybe she dropped, maybe she didn't. We still don't know who she is. We may suspect, but this guy doesn't suspect. Our hero doesn't suspect. We meet John Morgan. Boy, is he a disagreeable so-and-so. Oh my goodness. And boy, he can really pull people to fighting speed right away. You just want to give him a smack. And you hope somebody does. So anyway, the mystery just goes on. We're going to get another three chapters today because they're fairly short. And maybe that will start to illuminate a few things. We'll find out a little bit about Miss Devereaux, who's mentioned in the grandfather's will. We'll find a housebreaker. 
and receive a caller. So get ready, because we're going to dive in. Chapter 9 The Girl and the Rabbit Wind and rain rioted in the wood, and occasionally both fell upon the library windows with a howl and a splash. The tempest had wakened me. It seemed that every chimney in the house held a screaming demon. We were now well launched upon December, and I was growing used to my surroundings. I had offered myself frequently as a target by land and water, I had sat on the wall and tempted fate, and I had roamed the house constantly expecting to surprise Bates in some act of treachery, but the days were passing monotonously. I saw nothing of Morgan. He had gone to Chicago on some errand, so Bates reported, but I continued to walk abroad every day, and often at night, alert for a reopening of hostilities. Twice I had seen the red tam-o'-shanter far through the wood, and once I had passed my young acquaintance with another girl, a dark laughing youngster, walking in the highway, and she had bowed to me coldly. Even the ghost in the wall proved inconstant, but I had twice heard the steps without being able to account for them. Memory kept plucking my sleeve with reminders of my grandfather. I was touched at finding constantly his marginal notes in the books he had collected with so much intelligence and loving care. It occurred to me that some memorial, a tablet attached to the outer wall, or perhaps more properly placed in the chapel, would be fitting, and I experimented with designs for it, covering many sheets of drawing paper in an effort to set forth, in a few words, some hint of his character. On this grey morning I produced this, 1835. The life of John Marshall Glenarm was a testimony to the virtue of generosity, forbearance, and gentleness. The beautiful things he loved were not nobler than his own days. His grandson, who served him ill, writes this of him. 1901. I had drawn these words on a piece of cardboard and was studying them critically when Bates came in with wood. "'Those are unmistakable snowflakes, sir,' said Bates from the window. "'We're in for winter now.' It was undeniably snow. Great lazy flakes of it were crowding down upon the wood. Bates had not mentioned Morgan or referred even remotely to the pistol-shot of my first night, and he had certainly conducted himself as a model servant. The man of all work at St. Agatha's, a Scotchman named Ferguson, had visited him several times, and I had surprised them once, innocently enjoying their pipes and whiskey and water in the kitchen. "'They're having trouble at the school, sir,' said Bates from the hearth. "'The young lady's running a little wild, eh?' "'Sister Teresa's ill, sir. Ferguson told me last night.' "'No doubt Ferguson knows,' I declared, moving the papers about on my desk, conscious, and not ashamed of it, that I enjoyed these dialogues with Bates. I occasionally entertained the idea that he would some day brain me, as I sat dining upon the viands which he prepared with so much skill, or perhaps he would poison me, that being rather more in his line of business, and perfectly easy of accomplishment. But the house was bare and lonely, and he was a resource. "'So, Sister Teresa's ill,' I began, seeing that Bates had nearly finished, and glancing with something akin to terror, upon the open pages of a dreary work on English cathedrals that had put me to sleep the day before. "'She's been quite uncomfortable, sir. But they hope to see her out in a few days.' "'That's good. I'm glad to hear it.' "'Yes, sir. I think we naturally feel interested, being neighbors. And Ferguson says Miss Devereux's devotion to her aunt is quite touching.' I stood up straight and stared at Bates' back. He was trying to stop the rattle which the wind had set up in one of the windows. "'Miss Devereux?' I laughed outright. "'That's the name, sir. Rather odd, I should call it.' "'Yes, it is rather odd,' I said, composed again, but not referring to the name. My mind was busy with a certain paragraph in my grandfather's will. Should he fail to comply with this provision, said property will revert to my general estate, and become, without reservation, and without necessity for any process of law, the property absolutely of Marion Devereux, of the county and state of New York.' "'Your grandfather was very fond of her, sir. She and Sister Teresa were abroad at the time he died. It was my sorrowful duty to tell them the sad news in New York, sir, when they landed. The devil it was! It irritated me to remember that Bates probably knew exactly the nature of my grandfather's will, and the terms of it were not in the least credible to me. Sister Teresa and her niece were doubtless calmly awaiting my failure to remain at Glenarm House during the disciplinary year.' Sister Teresa, a Protestant nun, and the niece, who probably taught drawing in the school for her keep. 
i was sure it was drawing nothing else would i felt have brought the woman within the pale of my grandfather's beneficence i had given no thought to sister teresa since coming to glenarm she had derived her knowledge of me from my grandfather and such being the case she would naturally look upon me as a blackguard and a menace to the peace of the neighborhood i had therefore kept rigidly to my own side of the stone wall a suspicion crossed my mind marshalling a host of doubts and questions that had lurked there since my first night at glenarm bates he was moving toward the door with his characteristic slow step if your friend morgan or any one else should shoot me or if i should tumble into the lake or otherwise end my earthly career bates his eyes had slipped from mine to the window and i spoke his name sharply yes mr glenarm then sister teresa's niece would get this property and everything else that belonged to mr glenarm that's my understanding of the matter sir morgan the caretaker has tried to kill me twice since i came here he fired at me through the window the night i came bates i waited for his eyes to meet mine again his hands opened and shut several times and alarm and fear convulsed his face for a moment bates i'm trying my best to think well of you but i want you to understand i smote the table with my clenched hand that if these women or your employer mr pickering or that damned hound morgan or you damn you i don't know who or what you are think you can scare me away from here you've waked up the wrong man and i'll tell you another thing you may repeat it to your school teachers and to mr pickering who pays you and to morgan whom somebody has hired to kill me that i'm going to keep faith with my dead grandfather and that when i've spent my year here and done what that old man wished me to do i'll give them this house and every acre of ground and every damned dollar the estate carries with it and now one other thing i suppose there's a sheriff or some kind of a constable with jurisdiction over this place and i could have the whole lot of you put into jail for conspiracy but i'm going to stand out against you alone do you understand me you hypocrite you stupid slinking spy answer me quick before i throw you out of the room i had worked myself into a great passion and fairly roared my challenge pounding the table in my rage yes sir i quite understand you sir but i'm afraid sir of course you're afraid i shouted enraged anew by his halting speech you have every reason in the world to be afraid you've probably heard that i'm a bad lot and a worthless adventurer but you can tell sister teresa or pickering or anybody you please that i'm ten times as bad as i've ever been painted now clear out of here he left the room without looking at me again during the morning i strolled through the house several times to make sure he had not left it to communicate with some of his fellow plotters but i was i admit disappointed to find him in every instance busy at some wholly proper task once indeed i found him cleaning my storm boots to find him thus humbly devoted to my service after the raking i had given him dulled the edge of my anger i went back to the library and planned a cathedral in seven styles of architecture all unrelated and impossible and when this began to bore me i designed a crypt in which the wicked should be buried standing on their heads and only the very good might lie and sleep in peace these diversions and several black cigars won me to a more amiable mood i felt better on the whole for having announced myself to the delectable bates who gave me for luncheon a brace of quails done in a manner that stripped criticism of all weapons we did not exchange a word and after knocking about in the library for several hours i went out for a tramp winter had indeed come and possessed the earth and it had given me a new landscape the snow continued to fall in great heavy flakes and the ground was whitening fast a rabbit's track caught my eye and i followed it hardly conscious that i did so then the clear print of two small shoes mingled with the rabbit's trail a few moments later i picked up an overshoe evidently lost in the chase by one of sister teresa's girls i reflected i remembered that while at tech i had collected diverse memorabilia from schoolgirl acquaintances and here i was beginning a new series with a string of beads and an overshoe a rabbit is always an attractive quarry few things besides riches are so elusive and the little fellows have i am sure a shrewd humour peculiar to themselves i rather envied the schoolgirl who had ventured forth for a run in the first snowstorm of the season i recalled aldrich's turn on gautier's lines as i followed the double trail howe'er you tread a tiny mould betrays the light foot all the same upon this glistening snowy fold at every step it signs your name a pretty autograph indeed the snow fell steadily and i tramped on over the joint signature of the girl and the rabbit near the lake they parted company the rabbit leading off at a tangent 
on a line parallel with the lake, while his pursuer's steps pointed toward the boathouse. There was, so far as I knew, only one student of adventurous blood at St. Agatha's, and I was not in the least surprised to see, on the little sheltered balcony of the boathouse, the red tam-o'-shanter. She wore, too, the covert coat I remembered from the day I first saw her from the wall. Her back was toward me as I drew near, her hands were thrust into her pockets. She was evidently enjoying the soft mingling of the snow with the still blue waters of the lake, and a girl and a snowstorm are, if you ask my opinion, a pretty combination. The fact of a girl's facing a winter storm argues mightily in her favor, testifies, if you will allow me, to a serene and dauntless spirit, for one thing, and a sound constitution for another. I ran up the steps, my cap in one hand, her overshoe in the other. She drew back a trifle, just enough to bring my conscience to its knees. I didn't mean to listen that day. I just happened to be on the wall, and it was a thoroughly underbred trick, my twitting you about it, and I should have told you before, if I'd known how to see you. May I trouble you for that shoe? she said with a great deal of dignity. They taught that cold disdain of man, I supposed, as a required study at St. Agatha's. Oh, certainly. Won't you allow me? Thank you. No. I was relieved, to tell the truth, for I had been out of the world for most of that period in which a youngster perfects himself in such graces as the putting on of a girl's overshoes. She took the damp bit of rubber, a wet overshoe, even if small and howled by associations, isn't pretty, as Venus might have received a soft-shell crab from the hand of a fresh young merman. I was between her and the steps, to which her eyes turned longingly. Of course, if you won't accept my apology, I can't do anything about it, but I hope you understand that I'm sincere and humble, and anxious to be forgiven. You seem to be making a good deal of a small matter. I wasn't referring to the overshoe, I said. She did not relent. If you'll only go away. She rested one hand against the corner of the boathouse while she put on the overshoe. She wore, I noticed, brown gloves with cuffs. How can I go away? You children are always leaving things about for me to pick up. I'm perfectly worn out carrying some girl's beads about with me, and I spoiled a good glove on your overshoe. I'll relieve you of the beads, too, if you please. And her tone measurably reduced my stature. She thrust her hands into the pockets of her coat and shook the tam-o'-shanter slightly to establish it in a more comfortable spot on her head. The beads had been in my corduroy coat since I found them. I drew them out and gave them to her. Thank you. Thank you very much. Of course they are yours, miss. She thrust them into her pocket. Of course they're mine, she said indignantly, and turned to go. We'll waive proof of property and that sort of thing, I remarked, with, I fear, the hope of detaining her. I'm sorry not to establish a more neighborly feeling with St. Agatha's. The stone wall may seem formidable, but it's not of my building. I must open the gate. That wall's a trifle steep for climbing. I was amusing myself with the idea that my identity was a dark mystery to her. I had read English novels in which the young lord of the manor is always mistaken for the gamekeeper's son by the pretty daughter of the curate, who has come home from school to be the belle of the county. But my lady of the red tam-o'-shanter was not a creature of illusions. "'It serves a very good purpose. The wall, I mean, Mr. Glenarm.' She was walking down the steps, and I followed. I am not a man to suffer a lost schoolgirl to cross my lands unattended in a snowstorm, and the piazza of a boathouse is not, I submit, a pleasant loafing-place on a winter day.' She marched before me, her hands in her pockets. I liked her particularly that way, with an easy swing and a light and certain step. Her remark about the wall did not encourage further conversation, and I fell back upon the poets. Stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage, I quoted. Quoting poetry in a snowstorm while you stumble through a woodland behind a girl who shows no interest in either your prose or your rhymes has its embarrassments particularly when you are breathing a trifle hard from the swift pace your auditor is leading you. "'I've heard that before,' she said, half turning her face, then laughing as she hastened on. Her brilliant cheeks were a delight to my eye. The snow swirled about her, whitening the crown of her red cap, and clung to her shoulders. Have you ever seen snow crystals gleam, break, dissolve in fair, soft, storm-blown hair? Do you know how a man will pledge his soul that a particular flake will never fade, never cease to rest upon a certain flying strand over a girlish temple, and he loses, his heart and his wager, in a breath. If you fail to understand these things, and are furthermore 
Unfamiliar with the fact that the color in the cheeks of a girl who walks abroad in a driving snowstorm marks the favor of heaven itself, then I waste time, and you will do well to rap at the door of another inn. I'd rather missed you, I said, and really I should have been over to apologize if I hadn't been afraid. Sister Teresa's rather fierce, she declared, and we're not allowed to receive gentlemen callers. It says so in the catalogue. So I imagined. I trust Sister Teresa is improving? Yes, thank you. And Miss Devereux, is she quite well, I hope? She turned her head as though to listen more carefully, and her step slackened for a moment. Then she hurried blithely forward. Oh, yes, she's always well, I believe. You know her, of course? Oh, rather. She gives us music lessons. So, Miss Devereux is the music teacher, is she? Should you call her a popular teacher? The girls call her. She seems moved to mirth by the recollection. Miss Prim and Prosy. Ugh! I exclaimed sympathetically. Tall and hungry-looking, with long talons that pound the keys with grim delight. I know the sort. She's a sight, and my guide laughed approvingly. But we have to take her. She's part of the treatment. You speak of St. Agatha's as though it were a sanatorium. Oh, it's not so bad. I've seen worse. Where do most of the students come from? All what you call Hoosiers? Oh, no. They're from all over. Cincinnati, Chicago, Cleveland, Indianapolis. What the magazines call the Middle West. I believe that is so. The bishop addressed us once as the flower of the Middle West, and made us really wish he'd come again. We were approaching the gate. Her indifference to the storm delighted me. Here, I thought in my admiration, is a real product of the Western world. I felt that we had made strides toward such a comradeship as is proper should exist between a schoolgirl in her teens and a male neighbor of twenty-seven. I was, going back to English fiction, the young squire walking home with the curate's pretty young daughter and conversing with fine condescension. We girls all wish we could come over and help hunt the lost treasure. It must be simply splendid to live in a house where there's a mystery, secret passages, and chests of doubloons, and all that sort of thing. My, Squire Glenarm, I suppose you spend all your nights exploring secret passages. This free expression of opinion startled me, though she seemed wholly innocent of impertinence. Who says there's any secret about the house? I demanded. Oh, Ferguson, the gardener, and all the girls. I fear Ferguson is drawing on his imagination. Well, all the people in the village think so. I've heard the candy shop woman speak of it often. She'd better attend to her taffy, I retorted. Oh, you mustn't be sensitive about it. All us girls think it ever so romantic, and we call you sometimes the Lord of the Realm, and when we see you walking through the darkling wood at evenfall, we say, My Lord is brooding upon the treasure chests. This, delivered in the stilted tone of one who is half quoting and half improvising, was irresistibly funny, and I laughed with good will. I hope you've forgiven me, I began, kicking the gate to knock off the snow, and taking the key from my pocket. But I haven't, Mr. Glenarm. Your assumption is, to say the least, unwarranted. I got that from a book. It isn't fair for you to know my name, and for me not to know yours, I said leadingly. You're perfectly right. You are Mr. John Glenarm, the gardener told me, and I'm just Olivia. They don't allow me to be called Miss yet. I'm very young, sir." "'You've only told me half,' and I kept my hand on the closed gate. The snow still fell steadily, and the short afternoon was nearing its close. I did not like to lose her, the life, the youth, the mirth for which she stood. The thought of Glenarm House amid the snow-hung wood, and of the long winter evening that I must spend alone, moved me to delay. Lights already gleamed in the school buildings straight before us, and the sight of them smote me with loneliness. "'Olivia Gladys Armstrong!' she said laughing, brushed past me through the gate, and ran lightly over the snow toward St. Agatha's. CHAPTER Ten, AN AFFAIR WITH THE CARETAKER I read in the library until late, hearing the howl of the wind outside with satisfaction in the warmth and comfort of the great room. Bates brought in some sandwiches and a bottle of ale at midnight. "'If there's nothing more, sir?' "'That is all, Bates,' and he went off sedately to his own quarters." I was restless and in no mood for bed, and mourned the lack of variety in my grandfather's library. I moved about from shelf to shelf, taking down one book after another, and while thus engaged came upon a series of large volumes extra-illustrated in watercolors of unusual beauty. They occupied a lower shelf, 
and I sprawled on the floor like a boy with a new picture book in my absorption, piling the great volumes about me. They were on related subjects pertaining to the French chateau. In the last volume I found a sheet of white notepaper no larger than my hand, a forgotten bookmark, I assumed, and half crumpled it in my fingers before I noticed the lines of a pencil sketch on one side of it. I carried it to the table and spread it out. It was not the bit of idle penciling it had appeared to be at first sight. A scale had evidently been followed, and the lines drawn with a ruler. With such trifles my grandfather had no doubt amused himself. There was a long corridor indicated, but of this I could make nothing. I studied it for several minutes, thinking it might have been a tentative sketch of some part of the house. In turning it about under the candelabrum, I saw that in several places the glaze had been rubbed from the paper by an eraser, and this piqued my curiosity. I brought a magnifying glass to bear upon the sketch. The drawing had been made with a hard pencil, and the eraser had removed the lead, but a well-defined imprint remained. I was able to make out the letters N, W, three-quarter, to C, a reference clearly enough to points of the compass, and a distance. The word ravine was scrawled over a rough outline of a doorway or opening of some sort, and then the phrase, the door of bewilderment. Now I am rather an imaginative person. That is why engineering captured my fancy. It was through his trying to make an architect, a person who quarrels with women about their kitchen sinks, of a boy who wanted to be an engineer, that my grandfather and I failed to hit it off. From boyhood I have never seen a great bridge or watched a locomotive climb a difficult hillside without a thrill, and a lighthouse still seems to me quite the finest monument a man can build for himself. My grandfather's devotion to old churches and medieval houses always struck me as trifling and unworthy of a grown man, and fate was busy with my affairs that night, for, instead of lighting my pipe with the little sketch, I was strangely impelled to study it seriously. I drew for myself rough outlines of the interior of Glenarm House, as it had appeared to me, and then I tried to reconcile the little sketch with every part of it. The door of bewilderment was the charm that held me. The phrase was in itself a lure. The man who had built a preposterous house in the woods of Indiana, and called it the House of a Thousand Candles, was quite capable of other whims, and as I bent over this scrap of paper in the candle-lighted library, it occurred to me that possibly I had not done justice to my grandfather's genius. My curiosity was thoroughly aroused as to the hidden corners of the queer old house, round which the wind shrieked tormentingly. I went to my room, put on my corduroy coat for its greater warmth in going through the cold halls, took a candle, and went below. One o'clock in the morning is not the most cheering hour for exploring the dark recesses of a strange house, but I had resolved to have a look at the ravine opening and determine, if possible, whether it bore any relation to the door of bewilderment. All was quiet in the great cellar. Only here and there an area window rattled dolorously. I carried a tape-line with me and made measurements of the length and depth of the corridor and of the chambers that were set off from it. These figures I entered in my notebook for further use, and sat down on an empty nail-keg to reflect. The place was certainly substantial. The candle at my feet burned steadily, with no hint of a draught. But I saw no solution of my problem. All the doors along the corridor were open, or yielded readily to my hand. I was losing sleep for nothing. My grandfather's sketch was meaningless. And I rose and picked up my candle, yawning. Then a curious thing happened. The candle, whose thin flame had risen unwaveringly, sputtered, and went out, as a sudden gust swept the corridor. I had left nothing open behind me, and the outer doors of the house were always locked and barred, but someone had gained ingress to the cellar by an opening of which I knew nothing. I faced the stairway that led up to the back hall of the house, when, to my astonishment, steps sounded behind me, and turning, I saw coming toward me a man carrying a lantern. I marked his careless step. He was undoubtedly on familiar ground. As I watched him, he paused lifted the lantern to a level with his eyes, and began sounding the wall with a hammer. Here, undoubtedly, was my friend Morgan, again. There was the same periodicity in the beat on the wall that I had heard in my own rooms. He began at the top, and went methodically to the floor. I leaned against the wall where I stood, and watched the lantern slowly coming toward me. The small revolver with which I had fired at his flying figure in the wood was in my pocket, it was just as well to have it out with the fellow now. 
My chances were as good as his, though I confess I did not relish the thought of being found dead the next morning in the cellar of my own house. It pleased my humour to let him approach in this way, unconscious that he was watched, until I should thrust my pistol into his face. His arms grew tired when he was about ten feet from me, and he dropped the lantern and hammer to his side, and swore under his breath impatiently. Then he began again with greater zeal. As he came nearer, I studied his face in the lantern's light with interest. His hat was thrust back, and I could see his jaw hard set under his blond beard. He took a step nearer, ran his eyes over the wall, and resumed his tapping. The ceiling was something less than eight feet, and he began at the top. In settling himself for the new series of strokes, he swayed toward me slightly, and I could hear his hard breathing. I was deliberating how best to throw myself upon him, but as I wavered, he stepped back, swore at his ill-luck, and flung the hammer to the ground. "'Thanks!' I shouted, leaping forward and snatching the lantern. "'Stand just where you are!' With the revolver in my right hand and the lantern held high in my left, I enjoyed his utter consternation, as my voice roared in the corridor. "'It's too bad we meet under such strange circumstances, Morgan,' I said. "'I'd begun to miss you.' "'But I suppose you've been sleeping in the daytime "'to gather strength for your night prowling.' "'You're a fool,' he growled. "'He was recovering from his fright. "'I knew it by the gleam of his teeth in his yellow beard. "'His eyes, too, were moving restlessly about. "'He undoubtedly knew the house better than I did, "'and was considering the best means of escape. "'I did not know what to do with him "'now that I had him at the point of a pistol, "'and in my ignorance of his motives "'and my vague surmise as to the agency back of him, I was filled with uncertainty. "'You needn't hold that thing quite so near,' he said, staring at me coolly. "'I'm glad it annoys you, Morgan,' I said. "'It may help you to answer some questions I'm going to put to you.' "'So you want information, do you, Mr. Glenarm? I should think it would be beneath the dignity of a great man like you to ask a poor devil like me for help.' "'We're not talking of dignity,' I said. "'I want you to tell me how you got in here.' He laughed. <laughs> "'You're a very shrewd one, Mr. Glenarm. "'I came in by the kitchen window, if you must know. "'I got in before your solemn jack-of-all-trades locked up, "'and I walked down to the end of the passage there.' "'He indicated the direction with a slight jerk of his head, "'and slept until it was time to go to work. "'You can see how easy it was.' "'I laughed now at the sheer assurance of the fellow. "'If you can't lie better than that, you needn't try again. "'Face about now, and march.' "'I put new energy into my tone.' and he turned and walked before me down the corridor in the direction from which he had come. We were, I dare say, a pretty pair, he tramping doggedly before me, I following at his heels with his lantern and my pistol. The situation had played prettily into my hands, and I had every intention of wresting from him the reason for his interest in Glenarm House and my affairs. "'Not so fast,' I admonished sharply. "'Excuse me,' he replied mockingly. He was no common rogue. I felt the quality in him with a certain admiration for his scoundrelly talents. A fellow, I reflected, who was best studied at the point of a pistol. I continued at his heels, and poked the muzzle of the revolver against his back from time to time, to keep him assured of my presence, a device that I was to regret a second later. We were about ten yards from the end of the corridor, when he flung himself backward upon me, threw his arms over his head, and seized me about the neck, turning himself lightly until his fingers clasped my throat. I fired blindly once, and felt the smoke of the revolver hot in my own nostrils. The lantern fell from my hand, and one or the other of us smashed it with our feet. A wrestling match in that dark hole was not to my liking. I still held on to the revolver, waiting for a chance to use it, and meanwhile he tried to throw me, forcing me back against one side and then the other of the passage. With a quick rush he flung me away, and in the same second I fired. The roar of the shot in the narrow corridor seemed interminable. I flung myself on the floor, expecting a return shot, and quickly enough a flash broke upon the darkness dead ahead, and I rose to my feet, fired again, and leaped to the opposite side of the corridor and crouched there. We had adopted the same tactics, firing and dodging, to avoid the target made by the flash of our pistols, and watching and listening after the roar of the explosions. It was a very pretty game, but destined not to last long. He was slowly retreating toward the end of the passage, where there was, I remembered, a dead wall. His only chance was to crawl through an area window I knew to be there, 
and this would, I felt sure, give him into my hands. After five shots apiece there was a truce. The pungent smoke of the powder caused me to cough, and he laughed. "'Have you swallowed a bullet, Mr. Glenarm?' he called. I could hear his feet scraping on the cement floor. He was moving away from me, doubtless intending to fire when he reached the area window and escape before I could reach him. I crept warily after him, ready to fire on the instant, but not wishing to throw away my last cartridge. That I resolved to keep for close quarters at the window. He was now very near the end of the corridor. I heard his feet strike some boards that I remembered lay on the floor there, and I was nerved for a shot and a hand-to-hand struggle if it came to that. I was sure that he sought the window. I heard his hands on the wall as he felt for it. Then a breath of cold air swept the passage, and I knew he must be drawing himself up to the opening. I fired and dropped to the floor. With the roar of the explosion, I heard him yell, but the expected return shot did not follow. The pounding of my heart seemed to mark the passing of hours. I feared that my foe was playing some trick, creeping towards me, perhaps, to fire at close range, or to grapple with me in the dark. The cold air still whistled into the corridor, and I began to feel the chill of it. Being fired upon is disagreeable enough, but waiting in the dark for the shot is worse. I rose and walked toward the end of the passage. Then his revolver flashed and roared directly ahead, the flame of it so near that it blinded me. I fell forward confused and stunned, but shook myself together in a moment and got upon my feet. The draught of air no longer blew into the passage. Morgan had taken himself off through the window and closed it after him. I made sure of this by going to the window and feeling of it with my hands. I went back and groped about for my candle, which I found without difficulty and lighted. I then returned to the window and examined the catch. To my utter astonishment it was fastened with staples, driven deep into the sash, in such a way that it could not possibly have been opened without the aid of tools. I tried it at every point. Not only was it securely fastened, but it could not possibly be opened without an expenditure of time and labor. There was no doubt whatever that Morgan knew more about Glenarm House than I did. It was possible, but not likely, that he had crept past me in the corridor and gone out through the house, or by some other cellar window. My eyes were smarting from the smoke of the last shot, and my cheek stung where the burnt powder had struck my face. I was alive, but in my vexation and perplexity not, I fear, grateful for my safety. It was, however, some consolation to feel sure I had winged the enemy. I gathered up the fragments of Morgan's lantern and went back to the library. The lights and half the candlesticks had sputtered out. I extinguished the remainder and started to my room. Then, in the great dark hall, I heard a muffled tread as of someone following me, not on the great staircase, nor in any place I could identify, yet unmistakably on steps of some sort beneath or above me. My nerves were already keyed to a breaking pitch, and the ghost-like tread in the hall angered me. Morgan or his ally Bates, I reflected, at some new trick. I ran into my room, found a heavy walking-stick, and set off for Bates's room on the third floor. It was always easy to attribute any sort of mischief to the fellow, and undoubtedly he was crawling through the house somewhere on an errand that boded no good to me. It was now past two o'clock, and he should have been asleep and out of the way long ago. I crept to his room and threw open the door without, I must say, the slightest idea of finding him there. But Bates the enigma, Bates the incomparable cook, the perfect servant, sat at a table, the light of several candles falling on a book, over which he was bent with the maddening gravity he had never yet in my presence thrown off. He rose at once, stood at attention, inclining his head slightly. "'Yes, Mr. Glenarm?' "'Yes, the devil!' I roared at him, astonished at finding him. Sorry, I must say, that he was there. The stick fell from my hands. I did not doubt he knew perfectly well that I had some purpose in breaking in upon him. I was baffled, and in my rage floundered for words to explain myself. "'I thought I heard someone in the house,' "'I don't want you prowling about in the night, do you hear?' "'Certainly not, sir,' he said in a grieved tone. I glanced at the book he had been reading. It was a volume of Shakespeare's comedies, open at the first scene of the last act of The Winter's Tale. "'Quite a pretty bit of work, that, I should say,' he remarked. "'It was one of my late master's favourites.' "'Go to the devil!' I bawled at him, 
and went down to my room and slammed the door in rage and chagrin. Chapter 11. I Receive a Caller. Going to bed at three o'clock on a winter morning, in a house whose ways are disquieting, after a duel in which you escaped whole only by sheer good luck, does not fit one for sleep. When I finally drew the covers over me, it was to lie and speculate upon the events of the night, in connection with the history of the few weeks I had spent at Glenarm. Larry had suggested in New York that Pickering was playing some deep game, and I myself could not accept Pickering's statement that my grandfather's large fortune had proved to be a myth. If Pickering had not stolen or dissipated it, where was it concealed? Morgan was undoubtedly looking for something of value, or he would not risk his life in the business, and it was quite possible that he was employed by Pickering to search for hidden property. This idea took strong hold of me, the more readily, I fear, since I had been anxious to see evil in Pickering. There was, to be sure, the unknown alternative heir, but neither she nor Sister Teresa was, I imagined, a person capable of hiring an assassin to kill me. On reflection, I dismissed the idea of appealing to the county authorities, and I never regretted that resolution. The seat of Wabana County was twenty miles away. The processes of law were unfamiliar, and I wished to avoid publicity. Morgan might, of course, have been easily disposed of by an appeal to the Annandale constable, but now that I suspected Pickering of treachery, the caretaker's importance dwindled. I had waited all my life for a chance at Arthur Pickering, and in this affair I hoped to draw him into the open and settle with him. I slept presently, but woke at my usual hour, and after a tub felt ready for another day. Bates served me, as usual, a breakfast that gave a fair aspect to the morning. I was alert for any sign of perturbation in him, but I had already decided that I might as well look for emotion in a stone wall as in this placid, colorless serving-man. I had no reason to suspect him of complicity in the night's affair, but I had no faith in him, and merely waited until he should throw himself more boldly into the game. By my plate next morning I found this note, written in a clear, bold woman's hand. The sisters of St. Agatha trust that the intrusion upon his grounds by Miss Armstrong, one of their students, has caused Mr. Glenarm no annoyance. The sisters beg that this infraction of their discipline will be overlooked, and they assure Mr. Glenarm that it will not recur. An unnecessary apology. The note-paper was of the best quality. At the head of the page, St. Agatha's Annandale was embossed in purple. It was the first note I had received from a woman in a long time, and it gave me a pleasant emotion. One of the sisters I had seen beyond the wall undoubtedly wrote it, possibly Sister Teresa herself. A clever woman, that— thoroughly capable of plucking money from guileless old gentlemen. Poor Olivia, born for freedom, but doomed to a pent-up existence with a lot of nuns. I resolved to send her a box of candy sometime, just to annoy her grim guardians. Then my own affairs claimed attention. "'Bates,' I asked, "'do you know what Mr. Glenarm did with the plans for the house?' He started slightly. I should not have noticed it if I had not been keen for his answer. "'No, sir.' "'I can't put my hand upon them, sir.' "'That's all very well, Bates. "'But you didn't answer my question. "'Do you know where they are? "'I'll put my hand on them, "'if you will kindly tell me where they are kept.' "'Mr. Glenarm, "'I fear very much that they have been destroyed. "'I tried to find them before you came, "'to tell you the whole truth, sir. "'But they must have been made way with.' "'That's very interesting, Bates. "'Will you kindly tell me whom you suspect of destroying them? "'The toast again, please.' His hand shook as he passed the plate. "'I hardly like to say, sir, when it's only a suspicion.' "'Of course I shouldn't ask you to incriminate yourself, but I'll have to insist on my question. It may have occurred to you, Bates, that I'm in a sense—in a sense, mind you—the master here.' "'Well, I should say, if you press me, that I fear Mr. Glenarm, your grandfather, burned the plans when he left here the last time. I hope you will pardon me, sir, for seeming to reflect upon him.' "'Reflect upon the devil!' "'What was his idea, do you suppose?' "'I think, sir, if you will pardon—' "'Don't be so fussy,' I snapped. "'Damn your pardon, and go on.' "'He wanted you to study out the place for yourself, sir. "'It was dear to his heart, this house. "'He set his heart upon having you enjoy it. "'I like the word. Go ahead. "'And I suppose there are things about it "'he wished for you to learn for yourself. "'You know them, of course, "'and are watching me to see when I'm hard or cold.' 
like kids playing hide the handkerchief the fellow turned and faced me across the table mr glenarm as i hope god may be merciful to me in the last judgment i don't know any more than you do you were here with mr glenarm all the time he was building the house but you never saw walls built that weren't what they appeared to be or doors made that didn't lead anywhere i summoned all my irony and contempt for this arraignment he lifted his hand as though making an oath as god sees me that is all true i was here to care for the dead master's comfort and not to spy on him and morgan your friend what about him i wish i knew sir i wish to the devil you did i said and flung out of the room and into the library at eleven o'clock i heard a pounding at the great front door and bates came to announce a caller who was now audibly knocking the snow from his shoes in the outer hall the reverend paul stoddard sir the chaplain of st agatha's was a big fellow as i had remarked on the occasion of his interview with olivia gladys armstrong by the wall his light brown hair was close-cut his smooth-shaven face was bright with the freshness of youth here was a sturdy young apostle without frills but with a vigorous grip that left my hand tingling his voice was deep and musical a voice that suggested sincerity and inspired confidence i'm afraid i haven't been neighborly mr glenarm i was called away from home a few days after i heard of your arrival and i have just got back i blew in yesterday with the snowstorm he folded his arms easily and looked at me with cheerful directness as though politely interested in what manner of man i might be it was a fine storm i got a great day out of it i said an indiana snowstorm is something i have never experienced before this is my second winter i came out here because i wished to do some reading and thought i'd rather do it alone than in a university studious habits are rather forced on one out here i should say in my own case my course of reading is all cut out for me he ran his eyes over the room the glenarm collection is famous the best in the country easily mr glenarm your grandfather was certainly an enthusiast i met him several times he was a trifle hard to meet and the clergyman smiled i felt rather uncomfortable assuming that he probably knew i was undergoing discipline and why my grandfather had so ordained it the reverend paul stoddard was so simple unaffected and manly a fellow that i shrank from the thought that i must appear to him an ungrateful blackguard whom my grandfather had marked with obloquy my grandfather had his whims but he was a fine generous-hearted old gentleman i said yes in my few interviews with him he surprised me by the range of his knowledge he was quite able to instruct me in curious branches of church history that had appealed to him you were here when he built the house i suppose my visitor laughed cheerfully i was on my side of the barricade for a part of the time you know there was a great deal of mystery about the building of this house the country folk hereabouts can't quite get over it they have a superstition that there's treasure buried somewhere on the place you see mr glenarm wouldn't employ any local labor the work was done by men he brought from afar none of them the villagers say could speak english they were all greeks or italians i've heard something of the kind i remarked feeling that here was a man who with a little cultivating might help me to solve some of my riddles you haven't been on our side of the wall yet well i promise not to molest your hidden treasure if you'll be neighborly i fear there's a great joke involved in the hidden treasure i replied i'm so busy staying at home to guard it that i have no time for social recreation he looked at me quickly to see whether i was joking his eyes were steady and earnest the reverend paul stoddard impressed me more and more agreeably there was a suggestion of a quiet strength about him that drew me to him i suppose everyone around here thinks of nothing but that i'm at glenarm to earn my inheritance my residence here must look pretty sordid from the outside mr glenarm's will is a matter of record in the county of course but you are too hard on yourself it's nobody's business if your grandfather wished to visit his whims on you i should say in my own case that i don't consider it any of my business what you are here for i didn't come over to annoy you or to pry into your affairs i get lonely now and then and thought i'd like to establish neighborly relations thank you i appreciate your coming very much and my heart warmed under the manifest kindness of the man and i hope he spoke for the first time with restraint i hope nothing may prevent your knowing sister teresa and miss devereux they are interesting and charming the only women about here of your own social status my liking for him abated slightly he might be a detective representing the alternative heir for all i knew and possibly sister teresa 
was a party to the conspiracy. "'In time, no doubt, I shall know them,' I answered evasively. "'Oh, quite as you like,' and he changed the subject. We talked of many things, of outdoor sports, with which he showed great familiarity, of universities, of travel and adventure. He was a Columbia man, and had spent two years at Oxford. "'Well,' he exclaimed, "'this has been very pleasant, but I must run. I have just been over to see Morgan, the caretaker at the resort village. The poor fellow accidentally shot himself yesterday, cleaning his gun or something of that sort, and he has an ugly hole in his arm that will shut him in for a month or worse. He gave me an errand to do for him. He's a conscientious fellow, and wished me to wire for him to Mr. Pickering that he'd been hurt, but was attending to his duties.' "'Pickering owns a cottage over there, and Morgan has charge of it. "'You know Pickering, of course.' "'I looked my clerical neighbor straight in the eye, a trifle coldly, perhaps. "'I was wondering why Morgan, with whom I had enjoyed a duel in my own cellar only a few hours before, "'should be reporting his injury to Arthur Pickering. "'I think I have seen Morgan about here,' I said. "'Oh, yes. He's a woodsman and a hunter. Our nimrod of the lake. "'A good sort, very likely.' "'I dare say. He has sometimes brought me ducks during the season.' "'To be sure. They shoot ducks at night, these Hoosier hunters, so I hear.' He laughed as he shook himself into his greatcoat. "'That's possible, though unsportsmanlike. But we don't have to look a gift mallard in the eye.' We laughed together. I thought that it was easy to laugh with him. "'By the way, I forgot to get Pickering's address for Morgan. If you happen to have it—' "'With pleasure,' I said. "'Alexis Building, Broadway, New York.' "'Good. That's easy to remember,' he said, smiling and turning up his coat-collar. "'Don't forget me. I'm quartered in a hermit's cell back of the chapel, and I believe we can find many matters of interest to talk about.' "'I'm confident of it,' I said, glad of the sympathy and cheer that seemed to emanate from his stalwart figure. I threw on my overcoat and walked to the gate with him, and saw him hurry toward the village with long strides.' 